Now, welcome to another inspiring edition of Sound Insight with Dr. Tom Curran. Good morning. Welcome to Sound Insight. This is Tom Curran. It's great to be with you today. Well, today on the program, I have uh, two things I'm going to do Sure, In the first segment of the program, I want to give you an update on how things are going in my life, in my summer. Lots happening. And then in the remainder of the program, I have the first of two parts where I'm going to explore some Catholic myths. Catholic myths about the scriptures, about the Eucharist, about purgatory. I'm going to do a bit of uh, apologetics work today on the program. So in the first part, give you an update. Lots to cover. Back in a minute. Hi, this is Dr. Tom Curran, and you know me as the host of Sound Insight. I am also letting folks know that as a realtor licensed in the state of Washington and in Idaho, I love serving Catholic families and others who are discerning a move for yourselves. It's much more than buying or selling a home. It's discerning a whole new life. If that's something that you would find uh, a help in, if I could be of service to you, please be in touch. You can find out more at drtomcurran.com, drtomcurran.com. Hey, welcome back to the program. This is Tom Curran. It's great to be with you. Let's begin with the prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. <laughs> Heavenly Father, I thank you and praise you that you do call us to walk with you into the desert with your Son, Jesus, that you lovingly accompany us, Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit, that you give us the grace we need to know you and love you, serve you well, to seek to honor you above all things. Lord, I ask that you would um, give us grace. I just want this to be an encouragement, Lord, for, for, parent, uh, for parents and for disciples, Lord, who, are, um, who might be struggling a bit with what's happening in their lives right now. Jesus, please bless them. And we make this prayer in Jesus' holy name. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right. So, uh, last night I gave a talk at the Chesterton Academy of Notre Dame. I was doing a version of my uh, Parenting the Digital Generation talk. Uh, if you've been around Carrie and my life for the last 10 years, you know that this is one of the most important talks that we give um, when we go around and, and, and talk with parishes because of how critical a part the internet plays, internet use plays, smartphone use plays, and the various forms of addiction that are connected to smartphones and smartphone technology. And so uh, I had uh, talked with the, the headmaster of the Chesterton Academy, uh, Shane O'Doherty, about uh, possibly coming in and, and offering this to parents as we get launched into a, a new school year. Uh, our uh, freshman daughter, Annalise, is uh, going to be attending the Chesterton Academy in just a short month. And in fact, yesterday you had her first day of volleyball practice. So uh, cool for her. Um, so uh, it was a uh, it was it was a powerful night. It really was. It was powerful. I, I did it a little bit differently than I typically do. I have uh, 120 slides, but trust me, people don't want to see 120 slides as even though if they have got great content on them, uh, they're, I think, much more connected to stories and uh, maybe just a, 
the free flow of insights connected to questions they have. So that's the way I went about it last night. I shared the things that seemed to be most pressing to me. And uh, I think part of the reason was, was because of what I had learned through my fasting. Did you hear that? This is, this is kind of interesting. What I learned about, what I learned from my fasting was connected to what I shared last night about internet and smartphones and connected devices and the effect it has on our spiritual lives. And I can honestly say in the last three weeks that through this fasting, I have been brought into a, a new level of clarity about the way in which uh, this generation of smartphone addicts, and by I say this generation, I don't mean um, the younger generation. I mean people alive in the last 15 years are more and more, honestly, addicted to their smartphones, to swiping and, and looking at things and filling any empty space with time on the on their device. And and the reason why, this is the the thing that was so interesting to me is that in fasting, uh, and I think you know if you've been sort of tuning in a bit, I felt this call as a result of uh, the interview I did with uh, Brendan Case to start a water-only fast. Now it was electrolyte water, and I did allow myself coffee, um, but uh, after 21 days, I felt called because I was in Boston. I'm flying back. Long stories, but the point is I've shifted away from uh, water fasting after 21 days. And on day 22, I started to um, do a, a keto type fast. So very, very low carbs, low sugar, high in protein to keep me in ketosis. I did give myself a little bit of a Lord's Day. And I was wise about transitioning out of water fast by starting with the proper, like easing into it foods, uh, like watermelon and a banana and things like that, slowly, berries. And then, um, and then after a day, I took in a, a bit more substantial food. Um, and wow. <laughs> Okay, so what I learned about fasting in those 21 days, it I, I've got a bit of a book here. I've been taking a ton of notes throughout the fast and have been reflecting quite a bit more because of the fasting. I haven't needed to eat as much. Well, I haven't eaten at all. And that just clears up a lot more time in my schedule. And I've been praying and being in silence. By the way, I also didn't need to sleep as much, so it opened up more time again, for me to wake up early and take lots of time to be quiet in prayer. So what that reintroduced into my life in a new way, at, at a new level, at a new amount of time, was silence. And it's, I don't want to say, it, it's its not funny, its it's wondrous that I came to see the connection between smartphone use 
and the diminishment of the capacity to be silent. And not only that, but, but the impact of that, a realization of the impact of that, it struck me in a whole new way. Because, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a truism. It's super easy to get. You know, smartphone technology and AirPods just make it so convenient to just keep plugged in and stay connected to, even if it's good, good, good information like a homily and a podcast that's Catholic and, you know, things like that. Those things, even if that's all true, uh, on the one hand, on the other hand, it crowds out silence. It just crowds out silence. And so as I was preparing this updated version of the talk, I had my boys help me do some research and I stumbled into one of the physiological damages that has been like the data and research has shown is the capacity to pay attention. And it's like, wait a minute, that's connected to silence. You see, smartphones are connected to intensity. They're connected to surface. They're connected to consuming. I consume this video, swipe, consume this next video, swipe, consume this next video. And so it it tends towards a, an intensity of satisfaction. That one doesn't satisfy, move on to the next one. But it's all at the surface. I'm a consumer of surface experiences that I find satisfying. And you get that dopamine release and then other triggers, whether it's, oh, that's funny, that's entertaining, that makes me smile, that's clever, that's shocking. The, the different range of emotions that can be evoked. Uh, but all of that, I never drew a line between that and the capacity to be quiet, to be still, and to go within. And what's at stake in that? What's at stake if we're unable to go within? Well, what's at stake is transcendence. What's at stake is encountering the God who is beyond this world. What's at stake is a sensitivity to God's personal presence. What's at stake is a capacity to dwell in his presence consciously and intentionally and to dwell in the union with the Lord in my heart and then in my own awareness in the world around me. Silence is absolutely crucial if we want to go deeper. Because silence introduces us to a way of being present that is not about the surface. That's about the depths that come into contact with the surface. It's about the depth dimension of the human being. It's about the, the dimension of the divine, the supernatural, by going within the heart. You see, in our Catholic tradition, the path to transcendence is through imminence. Another way of saying it is that the inside is bigger than the outside. Another way of saying it is, do you want to encounter God? Go within your, go within your heart. Because when you go within your heart, you're baptized. You go within your heart and you encounter 
the Holy Spirit, you go beyond the world by going within your heart, not by going out into the world. So silence is all connected to that, and the internet destroys our capacity to be still. It's huge, huge, huge. So that was a huge insight that I've come to in the past three weeks. Uh, I, I won't go further into that today. I have about a three-part program I want to share with you on fasting just to bring out the new insights that came to me. But that'll wait. That'll wait till next week. Um, and at this point, though, I want to uh, transition from this segment to a section on Catholic Mythbusters. And you'll get an introduction to what I mean by that uh, after the break. I also want you to pray for me because I'm about to get on an airplane tomorrow um, with three freshmen as we head off to Franciscan University of Steubenville. So I'll be excited for that to be with them during orientation. But don't worry, say uh, Sound Insight will still be on and you'll still get hopefully programming that you find life-giving. All right, back in a minute with Catholic Mistbuthers Part 1. Hi, this is Dr. Tom Curran, and you know me as the host of Sound Insight. I am also letting folks know that as a realtor licensed in the state of Washington and in Idaho, I love serving Catholic families and others who are discerning a move for yourselves. It's much more than buying or selling a home. It's discerning a whole new life. If that's something that you would find uh, a help in, if I could be of service to you, please be in touch. You can find out more at drtomcurran.com, drtomcurran.com. Well, it's great to have uh, so many of you come out on a gorgeous evening, huh? I, I was coming from the north, and I wanted to give myself a little extra time. So I arrived and kind of got settled and thought, oh, I'm going to go over to the church and pray. So I walked over, and there's this beautiful sign right above the main doors of the church. St. Charles Borromeo warmly welcomes you as I pulled on the door, and it was locked. <laughs> and I'm tugging away, and... I went around, I walked the entire church. I circled the building and every door was locked. Not very welcoming. And I left the church, never to return. A lot of people come to the Catholic church or come into contact with a Catholic because they have questions. And some of these questions they ask and they feel like they get locked out. Oh, I think you're supposed to be warmly welcoming. And yet I, I got questions and, and I'm not getting in. I'm not getting into the answer that I'm looking for. And some of those questions are, are deep personal questions. And they require a respectful answer. So tonight I'm going to do two things in this evening called Catholic Mythbusters. I'm going to primarily be giving you a chance to ask questions, okay? So I hope you have some questions because I'm here to take them. Bring them on. And I'll tell you, you ask me a question, if I know how to answer it, I will. If I don't know the answer, I will make something up, okay? Or use really big words to confuse you. No, but even that, do you ever get asked questions and you're like, that's a good question. I don't know how to answer that. If you ask a question and I don't know how to answer it, 
I will let you know that, but I'll also say to you, I will not stop there. I will help you find an answer. And, and that actually is one of the important things that I'm also going to be doing tonight. That's the second thing, and that is equipping you with a variety of principles and insights into how to present our faith to those who have questions. So I'm guessing that there are two groups of you here tonight. There are those of you that come with those questions and you're just waiting for your chance to stump me or to get that answer and you want to ask those questions. But there are those of you that are saying, I'm the one who gets asked the question and I'm not sure what resource to draw on. How am I supposed to answer that person? So I'm going to hopefully equip you as well. And I am going to teach you some big words like hermeneutics. Say that. Hermeneutics, the science of interpretation. I'm going to share with you a number of principles that are drawn from that science and how they apply to the concept of walking with people to help them understand what the Catholic Church actually teaches as compared with what so often this person believes the Catholic Church teaches but actually doesn't teach. Have you ever bumped into situations where you're trying to answer a question about the Catholic faith that isn't actually what the church teaches. So often we're faced with misconceptions rather than authentic presentations of what the church teaches. So on our handout, when we were promoting the event, we listed six of those that are very common, right? Why do Catholics worship Mary? No one's ever asked you that question. Or maybe you've wondered that yourself. Why do Catholics worship idols, saints, right? So you stop and you say to yourself, let me understand this. Okay, let me begin with the simple story of a person who might bring you that question. Here's a, a young lady. She grows up in an evangelical church or maybe a fundamentalist church. And she's taught from her earliest days that the Catholic church is a false church. And one of the signs that the Catholic Church is not a Christian church, but an aberration. An aberration is that Catholics worship Mary. And so as she gets older, and she now is in her 20s, and she's learned this and heard this all her years, all her days, she is walking past a Catholic Church. And she decides to take a look. And she goes into the church, and it's big, and it's dark. And all of a sudden, she sees up in the front a statue of Mary. And this big statue of Mary, she has a crown on. And at her feet, there's a woman, an older woman, kneeling down. And this older woman kneeling down reaches into her pocket and pulls out Beads. And then she starts moving her lips. And then she takes a wick and lights a candle. And what does this woman say? I'm right. It's true. Catholics worship Mary. Now, do Catholics worship Mary? No. 
if that woman that was kneeling down praying her rosary devoutly and lit the candle came up to her and she said, hi, how are you welcome here? And she, and, and she said, why do you worship Mary? She'd say, what are you talking about? And so this is the first rule of hermeneutics. What is hermeneutics? Hermeneutics is this science that grew up in the early part of the 19th century. Up until that time, this is very simplistic, up until that time, the concept of understanding. Do you understand me when I talk to you? We speak the same language. Your answer would be yes. Understanding was presumed. Hermeneutics arose with a basic presupposition. In non-ordinary communication, presume misunderstanding. Did you hear that? Anybody married here? <laughs> In non-ordinary communication, presume misunderstanding. Presume that when you're talking about something, when you're looking at something, presume you will not understand it. Understanding is an achievement. Say that. Understanding is an achievement. And the, uh, the work that's required to get to understanding is called interpretation. How am I supposed to interpret what's showing up? It might be an event like that. It might be language. It might be some proposition. Let me presume that I don't understand what it is that's being shown to me or said to me until I work hard at trying to understand this. So, in my marriage, the two most common sentences Carrie and I say to each other are, number one, I love you, and number two, presume misunderstanding and inquire. Say that. Presume misunderstanding and inquire. That's what you should expect. Expect that actually truly understanding the other is going to take some effort, and the effort is inquiring. Help me understand what I'm seeing. Help me understand what I'm hearing. Okay, let's come back to that evangelical woman and let's try to give her an answer. Now, for somebody that you're talking to, and I guess there might be some of you here who think Catholics worship Mary, because everything that I see showing up is saying, you know, look at how that statue has a prominent place. Look at all the effort and attention that's given to, to Mary. This looks a lot like worship. Help me understand. I'm inquiring, okay? Well, tell you a story. About maybe 15 years ago, I was giving a retreat in Michigan, and the woman who was organizing the retreat on Saturday night after it was done, she said, let me take you to a restaurant that my son owns. It's a really hip happening, cool restaurant. I'm like, great, let's go. So got in the car, we drove up to where the restaurant was, and sure enough, it was a cool, hip-happening restaurant. I mean, there was a huge crowd of people um, kind of gated off, you know, like they had a roped-off roped area with all of these people, really like cool, sharp-looking people all waiting in line. And then we pulled up in our car, myself and the mother whose son owns the restaurant. We pulled up to valet parking. And we pulled up, and then all of a sudden, they opened up the... Uh, the passenger side door, and one of the valets saw the mother of the son who owns the restaurant. And it was like alarm bells went off. He helped her out of the car and ran. And all of a sudden, other people came over and started attending to her. He ran into the restaurant. And then other people started attending to her, and they came over, and they welcomed me. And, and here's that big line, and we start walking in. We start walking in, and I'm like, uh-huh. <laughs> That's right. 
We get into the restaurant and it is packed. It's just packed. Nowhere to sit at all. But we get in there and all of a sudden, magically, in the middle of the restaurant, this space appears and this table gets set up, boom, right in the middle of the restaurant, the best spot. A couple of chairs get brought over and we get personally accompanied to the center of the restaurant. And everybody there is like looking, who is that? And I'm like, uh-huh, <laughs> that's right. We sit down and it doesn't take 15 seconds and food is brought over to us. All the waiters and waitresses took time to come by and say hi to the mother of the son who owns the restaurant until the owner comes over. The Lord of the restaurant comes over and welcomes us. And again, everybody is, okay. Nobody understands why I told you that story, do you? Do you see what I just did? I'm trying to teach a truth by linking it to an experience in your life that's meaningful. So often when we hear concepts, concepts will bounce off of what we've learned through personal history. So one way to help address people who have a burning concern or a really important question is don't just give them information that'll hit their heads. Speak to them in a way that relates to their personal experience in a meaningful way. Oh, wait a minute. I think I'm getting your point, Tom. The mother of the son who is in charge of a space is actually a pretty big deal. But now let's use another resource. I'm gonna to refer to three resources along the way. Repeat after me, reason, reason. scripture, scripture, and history. Reason, scripture, and history are going to be three sources for you to fill in more content because it's going to be more than just giving a nice, cute story that's meaningful. You have to give them more content. So you could say, Jesus, who is the son, had a mother. And as a good Jew, he would honor his mother and father, one of the commandments. And you knew how he honored the father. I only do what I see the father doing in the Gospel of John. He honored his father perfectly in every detail. He also honored his mother. And so we are imitating Jesus. We are called to do what Jesus did. Our call is to imitate Christ in every detail of our lives. And we're called to honor God the Father. And we as a church are honoring his mother. Now, does that all of a sudden wash away all the difficulties of that person who brings 20-something, 30-something years of personal experience and formation in their minds. Do all of those doubts, difficulties go away? Absolutely. <laughs> not. Absolutely not. And so it's going to be your job to sow seeds. Sow seeds. Help them to recognize that the Catholic Church, when it comes to answering these difficult questions, we're not trying to prove that our teachings are true. We're trying to show that they are reasonable. That's the work of apologetics. Apologetics doesn't prove that what the Catholic Church teaches is true. It attempts to show that it's reasonable. And so we look at the scriptures and we could point to, and I'm not gonna spend any more time on it tonight unless you have more questions about it, but when we talk about our Blessed Mother, and the role that Mary has in the life of the church. It's not about proving that what the scriptures say are absolutely saying it means what the Catholic Church says, but it's showing that it's reasonable from the scriptures. 
So that's just an example. That's just a free, yes, question. Okay, so I'm saying, why not try to prove that it's true, right, rather than show that it's reasonable? And the answer is, is that the kind of truth that we believe in faith isn't the kind of truth that has the same concept of proof that, say, for instance, how fast is the speed of light? How far away is the sun at this time of year from the earth? Who's going to win the World Series? Boston Red Sox, right? We all. <laughs> I actually just showed you another important aspect of hermeneutics. Not only should you presume misunderstanding, you should also presume prejudices. Presume prejudices. Now, we think I'm not prejudiced. I'm talking about it as a philosophical concept. A prejudice is a prejudgment. We all bring prejudgments. We all say, this is what is real about this. We all have our prejudgments that we bring with us. And we're not always aware of those prejudgments. Does anybody know that? Yeah. Right? I'm going to, if you don't, if you don't know what I'm talking about when I say prejudgments, we all have prejudices. Okay, are you ready? San Francisco 49ers. <laughs> right? Yeah. New York Yankees. <laughs> right? Yeah. Right. I grew up in Boston. Yeah. In Boston, if you said the Yankees, if you didn't get beat up, right? There'd be this visceral response. Why? It's a prejudice. It's a prejudice, right? Those people who live in the suburb of Boston think they're important. <laughs> okay. So I'm, I'm unfolding for you some of the principles that you'll have to keep in mind. Okay. I'm turning it over to you now. Who has a question? Okay. Was Mary always a virgin, right? So the perpetual virginity of Mary. Does the Catholic Church teach that? Yes, it does. Is that in Scripture? Hmm. Now we talk about scriptural interpretation. Well, what does the scriptures say? The scriptures mention the brothers of Jesus and the sisters of Jesus. So you and I who read that, what should we presume? Misunderstanding. Remember, understanding is an achievement. And so you inquire. So let's inquire into the scriptures. And what do we discover? That the word in Greek for brothers or brothers and sisters has a meaning of, guess what? Literal blood relationship of brother and sister, but it also has a broader relationship of cousins. So when we read that Jesus has brothers and sisters, what does the Catholic Church say is an appropriate interpretation of that passage? It says that, in fact, in the Catechism, it says that this could refer to the cousins of Jesus, or it might even refer, this is another element in our tradition, to a previous marriage of St. Joseph, that St. Joseph could have been a widower and had children from that marriage. And when he married our Blessed Mother, that in fact, the brothers and sisters may in fact have been these stepbrothers and sisters of Jesus. And you could say, well, is there a sign of this? If Jesus, was, uh, if Jesus had other children, I'm sorry, if Mary had other children, then we would have noticed that when Jesus was on the cross, in John chapter 19, he entrusted Mary, his mother, into the care of John. And if Jesus had other brothers, and uh, other brothers, that would have been an honor. 
that would have been a privilege to take the mother into his home. So that's an example. Now, that's just from the scriptures. Now, guess what? When I say that to my Protestant brothers and sisters who don't believe in the perpetual virginity of Mary, and they hear that explanation, they say, oh, finally, I no longer believe that, right? No. No, so there's going to be a difference in interpretations. So are we just left at disagreement? No, there's another resource. It's called history. So we can say, here we are standing 2,000 years later, and we can look back. I've got my interpretation of those passages, and you have your interpretation of those passages. Are we just left with no further place to go? Well, no, we do. We have history. Let's kind of go all the way back. Let's see how far back we can go, and let's see how the earliest writers referenced Mary and referenced these passages. And what we discover is something like this, something called the Proto-Evangelion of James. Say that. The Proto-Evangelion of James. It's one of my big words to confuse you. No, it isn't. This is a late first, early second century document that refers to the childhood of uh, Jesus, the marriage of Joseph and Mary. And one of the things that it brings out is the fact that Mary had no other children. Now think about the timing of this document that was very popular at that time. Mary's children, if she had other kids, may still have been alive. Or at least the grandchildren would have been alive at that time. So the concept of a document like this being accepted by the community wouldn't have made any sense. It's like, hey, this says that Mary didn't have any other kids. Who are we? So does that prove that the Catholic Church's teaching is true? No. Does it show that it's reasonable? Well, yeah, it's showing a bit of a basis in history. In fact, we can go forward in history a few hundred years, and what do we notice? There's never any mention of Mary's other children, but there's always a mention of Mary's perpetual virginity. Now, does that prove that what the Catholic Church teaching is true? No. Does it show that there's a good reason to believe it? Yes. Okay. There you go. Someone else had a question. Yes. Great. I love it. So why, do you, why don't you just go straight to God? Why do you go to Mary? Why do you go to the saints? It seems unnecessary, right? This is when you get asked that question by your dear friends, I want you to say to them, you know, I'm having a hard time answering that. Will you please pray for me? <laughs> sorry, sorry, sorry. <laughs> This is another hermeneutical principle. Write this one down. This is very important. Truth without love is a lie. Truth without love is a lie. That was St. John Paul II who said that. And love without truth is a lie. Now, what does that mean? Well, what that means is, is that when it comes to answering people's questions, you're not answering questions. You're answering people who happen to have questions. In other words, it's personal. It's always personal. It's not about winning. No, actually it is. 
No. No, it's not about winning. It's about witnessing. It's about bearing witness to the truth that the Lord in his mercy and generosity has given to us, has revealed to us, has entrusted to us. And we who are Catholic are called upon to witness to that truth. Truth is not meant to simply land in our brains. Truth is meant to sink its roots into the core of our being. And it's meant to shine forth in our conduct. How beautiful is that? It's actually the catechism. Talks about the, God bless you, that the teaching of the church is to take root in our hearts and shine forth in our conduct. And so part of what we're called to do is to remember that it's not about winning, right? How many times have you won the debate but lost the friendship? Won the debate but diminished the relationship? How many times has arguments won a convert away from the church, right? I, um, let, me, let me come around to this. Uh, oh, I, I didn't answer your question. <laughs> about uh, praying to saints, right, and, and instead of to Jesus, right? Um, I'll answer this by saying, uh, yeah, let, let me start with something that's very real. I used something that was cute, and it was reasonable, right? Don't you ask friends of yours to pray for you? Yes, of course I do all the time. So then we can say, that's the principle we're using, that Jesus you know, you understand how natural it is, and we see that all the time in the scriptures. Pray for me, pray for me, pray for me. But what about the saints? Why would we have to ask saints when we can go right to Jesus, right? And so you can say, well, let's see. What is Jesus doing in heaven? Well, he's, he is worshiping the Father, loving the Father, but he's also praying for us. Well, who are the saints? Are they like on clouds? Eating popcorn? I hope there's popcorn. <laughs> but wouldn't the saints, the body of Christ, be doing what the head of the body, Christ, is? They'll do what Jesus is doing. And if Jesus is praying to the Father, our one mediator to the Father, why wouldn't the body of Christ also be presenting those petitions through, with, and in Jesus? And so that's one way of looking at it from our side. Now, does that explanation prove that what the church teaches is true? No. Does it show that there's a reasonableness to it, even based on the scriptures? In the scriptures in, in Revelation chapter 5, it talks about the prayers of the, or 7, the prayers of the saints going up like incense. And so here we have a scriptural example of prayers being brought before the throne of God, the prayers of the holy ones, the saints. Now there, it's probably referring to those who are still on earth. But we see this concept of mediation, mediation, that God is not threatened by the saints that he's raised up. In fact, he raises up the saints to help encourage us to model our lives after their witness. And he loves to respond to those very prayers as a way of drawing our attention to these holy witnesses. So, those are just some examples, right? Is that going to wipe away all their concerns? No. And so one of the things that we can do is this, is witness to it in our own lives. You might think that that would draw you 
draw a person away from Jesus, I tell you that when I ask the saints to pray for me, it does not draw me away from Jesus. It only draws me closer to Jesus. Okay, great. So why would we uh, talk to the saints? We're not supposed to talk to the dead. Okay, great. So in the Old Testament, it talks about this idea that you don't conjure up the dead, right? This is good. So, um, and so this raises the question, well, what is the state that those who have died, what is the state that they are in? Are they in the ground asleep, right? Are they waiting? Uh, in fact, this brings up a whole other one, right? Which is, why do you Catholics believe all these things that aren't in the Bible? like purgatory, right? And so this is a, I'm going to take it, this, this is a two for one. Okay, you're going to get a two for one here. Why do Catholics believe things that are not in the Bible? Okay, let's first ask the question, why do our non-Catholic Christian brothers and sisters say this? Well, they look to the scriptures as the authority for their beliefs. There needs to be a basis for their beliefs, so they look to the word of God for the basis of their beliefs. And the scriptures is the word of God, right? Sola Scriptura. We Catholics, guess what? We also look to the word of God for the basis of our beliefs. But our understanding of the word of God is more extensive than, uh, than Protestants because we believe the word of God has two forms, scripture and tradition. Now I'm gonna push that aside for just a moment. And I'll come back to it if you want to go further, because even the scriptures are the fruit of tradition, interestingly. Okay, but let's come back to this concept of, wait a minute. You Catholics believe things that are not found in the Bible. And they'll ask the question, where is that in the Bible? And you say, that's a great question, but it's a Protestant question. Catholics don't ask, where is that in the Bible? Catholics ask, how is that? in the Bible. Let me say that again. Protestants ask, where is that in the Bible? Show me the quote. Catholics ask, how is that in the Bible? How does it show up? So for instance, purgatory. They'll say the word purgatory isn't in the Bible, and therefore it's not a biblical teaching. And I'll say, oh yeah, purgatory is in the scriptures. And they'll say, where is it? I'll say it's in the same verse as the word trinity. Little theological humor, because the word Trinity isn't in the Bible. Therefore, the Trinity is not a biblical belief. And they'll say, no, 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 no. The Trinity is not, the word isn't found, but the concept is found. It's all over. So what you're saying, it's not where it's in the Bible, it's how it's in the Bible. And they say, welcome to the Catholic Church. <laughs> and then they fall down on their knees weeping, saying, how could I have been so wrong for so long? No, they don't do that. So hold on, hold on. You can jump on me in a minute. Okay. Okay. So what do I mean then? How is that in the Bible? So what's the concept of purgatory? The concept of purgatory says what? That after we die, there's this place we go that we have to spend some time in before we get to heaven, right? And so this can be a very complicated, uh, very complicated one to address because it has tentacles that go off in many directions. So first of all is trying to explain reasonably why the concept of purgatory makes sense. So let's just use reason. If I call upon faith at all, just tell me. Okay, so um, 
So um, when, when we're on earth, are we um, growing in holiness? Say yes. Okay, those of you that didn't say that are not growing in holiness fast enough. Okay, so uh, we're called to become ever more perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. Sins diminish. Holiness increases. Is that right, Tom? Yes, Tom. Yes. So by the end of our lives, at the moment we die, we are finally fully perfect, right? Wait a minute. We're not perfect when we die, but your first moment in heaven. Are you perfect? Your first moment in heaven? Yeah. Yeah. When you enter heaven, you're perfect. So very instant, you enter heaven, you're perfect. But the very last minute you leave this earth, you're not perfect. How do you go from being imperfect in the moment you die to perfect the moment you enter heaven? And they say, well, there's this kind of like instantaneous thing that Jesus does when he judges you, and, and then that's how you get in heaven. And I'm like, purgatory? <laughs> gotcha. Yeah, but it's really, 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 really quick. It's like kind of like quick. And I'm like, it's purgatory. It's the hot shower you take before you go to the wedding. <sighs> what did I just do? I connected to your human experience, right? Before you go to a very important event, you make sure you're all clean, spick and span, at your best, right? Does that prove this purgatory? No. Does it show that it's reasonable? Yeah. Okay, second, look at the scriptures. The word isn't found in the scriptures, but the concept is what? Oh. When you're set free, God sets you free by his mercy. Huh, think of the Exodus in slavery in Egypt. And then immediately after they get out of Egypt, they jump into the promised land because they are ready to enter into the God's good things. 40 years of what? Purification in the desert, learning to follow the Lord, learning to obey. Oh, so wait a minute, let me see. We're stuck in the slavery to sin until God in his mercy sets us free. Then there's this long path of purification and preparation in order to enter into the promised land of God's good things. Hmm. Purgatory. God intends to set us free. We get purification, and then we enter into the good things. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 10 to 15, tells the story of what St. Paul talks about, the day of judgment that will reveal the works of a person. And some of those works are going to be like precious gems, gold. And some of those will be like wood, hay, and stubble. And the day will disclose it by fire. It'll try that person's works. And some of those will be saved only as going through fire. That's not purgatory. All right. Well, it doesn't say the word, but the concept seems pretty clear that our lives are going to be judged and some of us are going to fall short of what we were supposed to be, we'll still be saved, but there seems to be a purification that happens before we enter in. So there's a scripture. Then look at, lastly, history. Right? You might say, yeah, that's a misinterpretation of the scriptures and a misapplication of scriptural principles. That's fine. Let's just take a look at history and let's see. What do we see in history? We see scriptural, uh, we see inscriptions on tombstones and in and, and the catacombs from the earliest days of Christianity saying, pray for me. Why would a Christian, why would that practice custom appear if in fact there wasn't some value to be gained by those who had died to receive prayers? 
If they're in heaven, they don't need them. And if they're, hell, they, if they're in hell, they can't benefit from them. So there was some sense in the community of faith in the earliest, from the earliest times that, in fact, prayers for those who had died had a beneficial effect and was not counter to our faith. Do all of those things prove that the church's teaching on purgatory is right? No. Does it show that it's reasonable? I think so. Reason, scripture, history, and hermeneutics. Yes, in the back. Okay, great. So do good works save you, right? There's another one. Catholics believe that salvation, I'm sorry, some, some Christians have this belief that salvation is by faith alone. And they'll quote from Romans, they'll quote from Galatians. You're saved by faith through grace, not through your works. It's the work of Christ. It doesn't have anything to do with you, except you accept the finished work of Christ. That's the concept, okay? It's very simplistic. I'm sorry, I, I, I didn't do it justice, but that's the basic idea. So what are Catholics? Don't Catholics believe that they're saved by their good works? No, there's only one exception. Big donations, okay? <laughs> and after this question, I'm gonna take up a collection. I am, I'm just warning you, I am actually. Uh, so other than that work, there's no direct path in, okay? Um, no, but wait a minute now. Let's take a look. What about that concept of works, okay? Um, so those of you that look to the scriptures, you most quickly will look to the letter to James, right? Faith in works. Faith without works is dead. But there are other resources as well that point to the concept of faith must manifest itself in how you live your life. So for instance, Matthew 25, there's that famous account of the Son of Man coming back to separate the sheep and the goats, right? And so on the right, you have the sheep going to heaven, and on the left, you have the Yankees fans, right? Uh, <laughs> sorry, the, left, the goats. So, um, and you say, wait a minute now, what was it that is the act by which they are saved? And those of you, uh, those of you on the left who embrace me, uh, those are, you are the ones who confessed me with your lips. No, what did they do? Fed the hungry, clothed the naked, visited the prisoner, tended for the sick. There's no mention of faith at all. There's only mention of works. And those are the ones that are saved. And you're like, whoa, how are we supposed to interpret that? Well... The Gospel of Matthew was written to a community of believers. They already believed in Christ. And so this parable was a powerful message for them that said, don't think you're in just because you're in the community and you confess Christ with your lips. It has to show up in how you live your life. If it's not showing up in how you live your life, we actually wonder whether that life of Christ is alive in you. And so that's just one. I could give a dozen of those examples how what you see in the scriptures is often based on how you were taught to read the scriptures, right? So exegesis is we try to read out what does this scripture mean? But oftentimes it's isogesis. It's reading into the scriptures what we already believe. So that's something that we have to definitely pay attention to. Okay? They're saying, so she's saying that there are some of her um, 
Protestant brothers and sisters who refer to the act of communion that when they celebrate the Lord's Supper in their churches, that Jesus said, do this in memory of me. And by that, he's saying, this is just a symbolic ritual whereby we remember something. And you know what? It all comes down to the word memory. And what should they presume? Presume misunderstanding and inquire. The word memory that Jesus uses in the context of this Passover meal is very rich. It's very profound. In fact, what it means is when you are enacting a ritual of remembrance that God establishes, that which is remembered is made present in an effective way for those who are remembering it. Did you get all that? <laughs> Buy the CD, okay? <laughs> Let me say that again. The act of remembering when you are, not just you and I remembering here, what does it say in the Gospel of Matthew, but when we are enacting a ritual of remembrance that's established by God, that act of memorializing brings from the past into the present in, a, in, in an effective way that which is remembered. So what did I say that Jesus was celebrating? What was the context? It was the Passover meal, which was a ritual of remembrance. What, what, what do they memorialize? What do they remember in the Passover meal? Ah, the act of the exodus, the being set free from Egypt of the Israelites from their slavery and then being brought by all these miracles of God out into the desert and then into God's uh, promised land of good things. So this memorializing of the setting free of God's people from their slavery is memorialized in the Passover meal. And how do they eat that meal? With their loins girt. Okay, on the count of three, girt your loins. One, two, three. Okay, you got that? Okay, I'm girding my loins. I'm hiking up my shawl. I'm hiking it up. Why? What can you do easier when you're hiking up your cloak? Run! Now, why would modern-day memorializers of the Passover meal remember that event in a way that would require them to hike up their cloak? Oh, because they're there. They're part of the Israelites' act of fleeing the Egyptians, being set free by God. They're actually sharing in that event not because their act of remembering makes it present, but God's action makes that effectively present when they celebrate it. Does that make sense? Just nod your head. Yeah. <laughs> so as I share this with you, not only do we have to understand scripture and history, it also takes reason. Okay, there we go. Catholic Mythbusters part one. I know we just uh, ended kind of abruptly with that question. Uh, tomorrow, I'm going to encourage you to tune into Sound Insight. You'll get the rest or part two of the Catholic Mythbusters uh, uh, series. And by the way, these series that you're hearing these days on Sound Insight, you can go to mycatholicfaith.org, not only to access these programs, but you can also order these as downloadable digital files for free. 
That's right. I do accept donations. And that's at mycatholicfaith.org. Okay, you guys have a blessed day. And join me tomorrow for more sound insight.